Hello and welcome to Top in Tech, a global council podcast. My name is Colin Darcy. I am your regular host and a senior practice director at GC. Over the past week, we've seen dramatic events as Silicon Valley Bank collapsed and it was formally seized by US federal authorities and their counterparts in the UK. Lots of hyperbole can be attached to this, but it is the second largest banking collapse in US history. And not only that, it's a huge moment in the story of the tech sector in the US, but also globally. So today I am delighted that with me is Max Mandich, a senior associate in our Washington DC office, who leads on financial services and fintech policy coverage in the US and around the world. So Max, thank you very much for joining me today. Everyone will have read headlines about what has happened, but I think it's useful for us just to go through, firstly, the unique role that Silicon Valley Bank has played in the tech sector in particular, and also the very specific circumstances which led to its collapse on Friday. Thanks, Conan. Silicon Valley Bank, they were the 16th largest bank here in the United States. They had about $200 billion in total assets. And as, as their name states, they had a very heavily outsized role within the tech sector here in the United States. Some estimates um, said they served up to half of the venture-backed companies in the country. Uh, they were huge in the tech and life sciences sectors. This was indeed the bank that essentially epitomizes Silicon Valley, the venture capital industry, and the portfolio companies of those of those firms. The Silicon Valley had experienced significant growth over the past several years, particularly during the tech boom, uh, growing from about $50 billion in assets in the mid-2010s, late-2010s, to about $200 billion of assets in the past year. Um, and I think this this... This, this kind of gets to two points on, on why the bank collapsed. These are two internet, interconnected things. Number one, concentration within this particular sector. And two, uh, this, this concentration contributing to the speed at which this unfolded. So Silicon Valley Bank did a fairly normal thing here in the US. They took deposits from these startups and they made investments with them. Uh, the investments Silicon Valley Bank made were typically considered safe. They had purchased the amount of U.S. treasuries. But when the Federal Reserve accelerated interest rate hikes over the past year, the value of these investments dropped significantly. So this takes us to Wednesday of last week. Um, obviously, you know, the tech sector's had a bit of a rough year. Um, there's been less money floating around. People have been needed to cover expenses. Silicon Valley Bank had to had, had been paying, you know, depositors had frankly been coming and asking them for money. They'd been forced to sell some of these investments at a loss. This gets us to last Wednesday when they publicly said they needed to raise about $2 billion in capital. And this is where you get to the concentration risk um, aspect of this collapse. So here in the United States, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation uh, manages the deposit insurance fund. And what this program does is it guarantees deposits up to $250,000. So this, this is designed to prevent the, it's a wonderful life scenario. Uh, mom and pop, we have a checking account and a savings account with a bank. Don't need to rush to pull their money out if they're, if they're worried about this bank, uh, if they're, they're worried about their bank struggling because they, they know their assets are insured up to $250,000. This, this mitigates the possibility of a run. And, and obviously sometimes the, uh, the, the fear of a run is frankly what triggers a run. And I think that's, that's that contributed to this collapse here. Different from, you know, a retail bank 
working with lots of you know ordinary people. Um, Silicon Valley Bank, the vast majority of their deposits were with these startups, these were corporate accounts. And I think some estimates put about 90% of the assets at Silicon Valley Bank were actually uninsured. So if you're just proposing a hypothetical here, if you're a startup and you have a million dollars with Silicon Valley Bank, you're just, you have this money to pay your operating expenses, pay your employees. Suddenly you're worried about $750,000 of this money not being there on Monday. So this is where you get to the concentration risk. You had a number of folks and you're, you're, you know, folks like Peter Thiel, for example, as a lot of the people publicly reported telling their portfolio companies, pull your money out. It might not be there. Suddenly you had all these startups racing to pull their money out of the out of Silicon Valley Bank and you had a classic bank run. Then the speed of this was pretty incredible as well. This gets to the other factor. They had about $42 billion worth of withdrawals in a single day. Um, which I believe was the fastest bank run in U.S. history. So basically, they asked for two. They, they, they said they needed to get two billion dollars in capital on Wednesday. Everyone started racing to get their money out because they worried these uninsured deposits were going to be there. All these people asked for forty-two billion dollars in assets that weren't there on uh, on Thursday, and the FDIC walked in on Friday morning and the bank shut down. I think what's quite interesting as someone who lived and worked through the financial crisis of 2007, 2008 onwards, is that actually the reasons you're outlining here sound quite mundane, not really about exotic financial engineering. There was obviously lots of talk in 2008, 2010 about the role of securitization or different types of derivatives in spreading the financial crisis. It really sound like there's that element in the, that's been a play with Silicon Valley Bank. But also the slightly quirky element that it's almost not a run on a bank by consumers and retail depositors, but but by businesses and business accounts, a very specific type of customer that Silicon Valley Bank were serving. And it goes back to a question which we explored with the previous guest, Sarah O'Connor from the Financial Times, where we were talking about the potential impact of interest rates on the tech sector. At the time, we were talking very much about private capital and how that was potentially drying up for gig economy and on-demand services. But obviously it's having a whole myriad of effects, not only in the tech sector, but across the economy. So you've taken us quite nicely to the history of Silicon Valley Bank and then the very recent history of Silicon Valley Bank over the past week. So we've got the FDIC coming in on Friday morning. Can you just talk us through what happened from that point onwards? What's the federal government's response been? And also I want... Max, can we get to this very specific point? Is this a public bailout? And if it's not a public bailout, what is it? There's been two big pieces to the initial response, and I'll, I'll get to the bailout question after this. But uh, the first part was protection of all depositors, including uninsured depositors from losses resulting from both Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank in New York. And the second program was a, a new liquidity program at the Federal Reserve. So to walk you through the first part of this response. So as we discussed, the, the vast majority of Silicon Valley's banks' deposits were uninsured. Typically, if a, if a bank collapses and, and, and there's an account there over, over $250,000, that money could potentially be lost. So what U.S. regulators did was they invoked what's called the systemic risk exception. This is uh, coming out of the, this is an authority given to them coming out of the global financial crisis. 
And this does essentially allow them to protect depositors above the $250,000 limit in the event of some type of systemic risk to the U.S. economy. And this is not funded by the taxpayers, theoretically, as uh, President Biden made sure to, 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 talk about folk, to talk to folks last week. This is actually funded by a special assessment um, on banks who pay into the deposit insurance fund. So second, the second part of the response was the creation of this new program at the Fed called the Bank Term Funding Program. And this is a $25 billion fund that essentially allows a bank to borrow against these type of high quality assets as opposed to selling them rapidly at a loss. So this is designed to mitigate that interest rate risk that Silicon Valley Bank was going through. They, they were selling what were safe assets at a loss because interest rates had gone up and on Wednesday or you know on the day they sold them they were they were worth less and they were worth less than they purchased them and they were and they were making taking a loss on those products this new program essentially allows a bank to borrow against them so they wouldn't have to sell them at a loss they could be able to take get a loan and be able to pay out depositors uh, hopefully mitigating the risk of a run so I think th these were aggressive moves and I think it's kind of telling that these both happened over the weekend. Um, I don't think federal regulators were wanted to give this uh, any more potential to get worse uh, on Monday when when things opened back up. You'll you'll, you'll notice that I think these both were announced before Asian markets opened. Um, and you know, to get to the last part of your question, is this a public bailout? So President Biden came on yesterday, and he uh, he very clearly emphasized to taxpayers that this is not a public bailout bailout. Um, you know, he said that the managers of these banks will be fired. This will be funded by a special assessment on banks and that the taxpayers are not going to be paying for this. Now, of course, you know, some people can argue, um, is this special assessment cost going to eventually be passed on to the average taxpayer in some capacity through fees or not raising, you know, not raising um, what you're going to pay on deposits to, to, to depositors despite interest rates going up. But um, it is through a, it is through an existing authority that 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 directly puts the cost on on the financial services industry, not the U.S. taxpayer. So I think if we take that together, Max, we're saying it's not a public bailout, or at least not a direct public bailout, but indirectly, there could be costs for consumers and retail depositors coming from this. There's a very very interesting question about. What happens now with the banks? Like, what, what do they feel fairly or unfairly about having to pick up the tab for what some might say is the responsibility of others in the financial or indeed technology sectors for what's happened over the last few days? And indeed, you will, I would imagine, those sorts of arguments will come into to sharp, clear view if and when the financial services sector start getting flack, if they do some of the things that you've talked about, such as uh, applying higher fees or not passing through the benefits to depositors uh, from uh, increased interest rates. So we're starting to stray there, Max, onto the politics. So it'd be great to get into what are the politics playing out here, because when you hear about bailouts, and we've discussed, is it a bailout, isn't it? But it could be easily characterized as a bailout, and particularly bailing out the tech sector, which is by all accounts the most successful part of the U.S. economy, and venture capital, which you are some of the the wealthiest sections of U.S. society, is that not quite toxic? 
And are we not going to see VCs and uh, their executives, their partners, their investors pulled in front of Congress for hearings in the coming months? Yeah, so I think here we've had the initial response, which was very much centered around preventing contagion, preventing this from getting worse, stopping the bleeding, making sure people are sure their deposits are safe. You know, we, you saw trading halted at a number of regional banks. It seems like this morning, um, some of those stocks perked up. It seems like maybe we're through the, you know, the initial outbreak and containment phase of this. And maybe we're now going to be eventually getting to the next steps, which are assessment of the situation, what went wrong and how Congress and regulators will respond more in the midterm. So in that sense, I do think there could be some some political backlash over this in the, in the tech and the VC sector. Um, the moves were, were fairly aggressive. I mean, this was a pretty significant statement by the government essentially saying these uninsured depositors will be protected no matter what. So I think once once we're kind of through that initial phase of everything's going to be okay for the broader financial system, the moral hazard argument potentially couldn't come into play. Um, you know, on the political front, I, I think the bulk of the initial conversation will be around banking and financial services, particularly since the Fed is actually doing a review of capital requirements currently. And they, they call, this is what uh, Vice Chair Michael Barr has called a holistic review of capital requirements. I think that that you know some some of this can play into that but you know senator elizabeth warren who's kind of a good she's a fairly good proxy for what the progressive left might be arguing over the next couple of months here you know her initial commentary was at was criticizing this 2018 banking reform which actually scaled back certain dodd frank provisions that could have applied to um silicon valley and signature these are provisions looking at um, basically the 2018 law kind of rolled back some provisions looking at the uh, 100 billion to 250 billion dollar range of banks so that her initial criticism was looking at that reform as opposed to the tech sector and you know you know i, I will all say this congress has a very short attention span and the uh the next crises could easily uh distract them from this but yeah i i could envision hearings on this subject particularly when you're bringing in the FTX situation from earlier this year and late last year. Um, you know, we haven't really touched on Silvergate Bank, but Silvergate, Silvergate Bank, um, it was a voluntary liquidation and that was a much more ordered wind down. But, you know, when you're thinking of bank exposure to the cryptocurrency sector, criticism from policymakers about the lack of due diligence surrounding FTX, and then you have on... Um, this conversation, looking at looking at uh, um, uh, you know bailing out the venture capital firms, in a certain sense, all these rich guys in Silicon Valley. Yeah, I could see potential uh, potential um, criticisms coming in. I could envision a hearing where you know, Senator Sherrod Brown and Elizabeth Warren want to bring people people in and criticize them. But what I'd like to do, Max, is to move on to some of the longer term policy implications. But if you forgive me for a moment i'd like to be a little bit parochial because while we obviously know that the the main crisis around silicon valley bank has been in the us and the major financial implications are in the states there's also been the linked collapse of 
the UK subsidy of Silicon Valley Bank. And it was a huge political issue over the weekend in the UK, albeit, as I said, on a smaller scale uh, to the US. So could you just quickly talk us through what happened in the UK? I mean, and what similarities or differences there are in, in how it played out? So obviously the biggest difference is that Silicon Valley Bank uh, was able to find a, a private buyer in HSBC. I think that, I think uh, the deal was for a single pound. They, they purchased uh, SV, SVB UK. Um, that's, that process is still continuing in the US. Um, so I would maybe frame it as the US moves more, more, a little bit more aggressive, I think particularly given the size of Silicon Valley Bank. Um, and one thing that I think is kind of maybe noticeably different was, I believe I saw your chancellor specifically mentioning the risk to the U.S. tech sector and um, maybe acknowledging the fact that this was a, this was a good result um, for protecting those kind of the U.K. startup ecosystem. I don't think you're going to see that statement here in the U.S. as prevalently. Um, I think Janet Yellen acknowledged, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen acknowledged the risk to the U.S. Sec tech sector over the weekend, but I, I don't think you're going to be seeing Biden administration officials necessarily touting the importance and necessity of saving venture backed capital uh, venture capital backed startups on TV. Um, they're framing this around protecting depositors, protecting the broader banking system. Um, so I think a you know the UK was able to find a private buyer pretty quickly over the weekend, and, and two I, I think the implications to the tech sector were actually something you guys were maybe being a little bit more public about. Yeah, I think that's right. It, it was interesting watching and speaking to people over the weekend. And the initial reaction was one of exasperation at a sense that the UK government had not reacted particularly quickly. Now, I think in retrospect, that, that may not have necessarily been totally fair, but I think there was a sense that uh, there could have been better communication uh, from the Treasury and elsewhere uh, to the wider sector about this. Come Monday morning and uh, the HSBC uh, acquisition, uh, jubilation and uh, suddenly everyone's extremely happy with how the government uh, has acted in this, this regard. So it's been a sort of, of uh, from one, one side to the next in the space of uh, 48 hours. I think your point around the tech sector is a very, very interesting one. And I guess this goes to the point that the US has the largest tech companies in the world. You have the largest tech sector in the world. The political debate about helping them out doesn't really apply. Even if smaller startups and some VCs would have been very badly affected, you still have Meta, you still have Amazon, you still have Apple and so on and so forth. In the UK, we don't have companies of that scale in the tech sector and the ambition which the Rishi Sunak's government has really tied itself to, is to use tech, science and innovation as the driver for UK economic growth. So having just done that about a month ago, and created a whole department to do it, to then suddenly make, see half of the, the tech sector go insolvent uh, was clearly not a great message for the government as part of that. So I think that, that explains the comms, but I totally get why you haven't seen the same on the US side. So as I said, let's go back to those long-term policy implications, Max. You said earlier that there are questions around moral hazard that will come up now. And also, what does it mean for the bank resolution regimes? I know there's a special exemption that you, you talked about before, but it, the question is, if Silicon Valley Bank needed a, I'm trying to think of an alternative word to bailout, but it needed some form of uh, support uh, 
uh, from the government or facilitated by the government. Where is the line going to be drawn now? So if there's another bank in the future that's smaller than Silicon Valley Bank, are market participants going to price in the idea that the government will again look to save depositors, even if those depositors have rather large uh, savings compared to your average consumer? Yeah, I think that's where the conversation is going to be going in the in the in the, the the future here. Um, so this was, you know, as I said, this was done under existing legal authorities. There was no, you know, emergency legislation over the weekend or anything like that. This was this was done surely by regulators over a couple of days without really consulting Congress in any particular capacity. Um, but essentially, the U.S. said that this two hundred billion dollar bank wasn't going to fail and they they did this through a government backed uh, backstop and backstops maybe the best words to use as opposed to bailout where is you know where is this line drawn you know i don't know i don't know if i can give you a solid answer but to me this says you know mid-sized u.s bank depositors might be rescued even if they're uninsured but i mean management and investors certainly will not be you know treated well uh in the future i think uh if you're the manager of a mid-sized bank and, and you watch, you know, kind of commentary about, you know, the, the U.S. banking se- sector is is good and our mega banks are great, but we're going to go fire these guys over the weekends uh, after this regional bank collapse. You know, I, I think I'd be thinking about that um, in the future. So, I mean, frankly, with, you know, divided government here in the U.S., you're you're not really you're not going to see legislation on this issue in the next two years. Um, so if, if there was going to be any actual changes to U.S. financial services policy. This would have to be done under existing legislative authority. So I mentioned, you know, I mentioned earlier, you know, you had these 2018 reforms to Dodd-Frank. Those are not going to get suddenly reversed by Congress. That's that's just probably not going to happen under today's political environment. You've already seen criticisms of these reforms from, from progressive de- uh, Democrats arguing this was the very reason these rules were more stringent before 2018. So I, I think that the, the biggest, the biggest actual financial services policy that they could be looking at is um, is this Federal Reserve review of capital requirements. You know, particularly looking at these hundred to two hundred fifty billion dollar banks. Um, you know, the the banking lobbying, uh, banking lobbyists, and you know, the industry stakeholders have been kind of teeing up some pushback on on the Fed, you know, uh, against increasing requirements. You've seen a few Republicans also come out with a statement saying, you know, the Federal Reserve needs to follow the letter of the law related to those 2018 reforms. These requirements for these, you know, these mid-range banks need to be tailored. But, you know, when when Michael Barr is undergoing this review, I, I feel like he, you're going to be looking, he's going to be looking at the situation of Silicon Valley and, and thinking about that quite quite critically. Um, and I just, one more thing on this, and th- this is more of a market structure component, so I, I don't want to linger on this too much, but, um, you know, you saw former treasury secretary, Larry Summers coming out and saying, could you see more concentration in the banking sector? Um, and again, I'm thinking these type of banks. So, you know, yes, if you, if you became bigger, this would bring on these additional, you know, regulatory requirements that a mega bank has, but, you know, does this diversification of, of of size or you know, of size type of clients geographic location actually grant you more stability particularly since i i do want to really emphasize that i really think the concentration risk for silicon valley bank and venture capital and 
Signature Bank with the crypto industry and, and Silvergate Bank with the crypto industry really did play a role in, in these bank runs. Um, I, I think you could see that conversation happening too. So in some sense, we've seen the full 360 between 2008 global financial crisis where the complaint was often that the assets and investments the banks had were, were too diversified. Whereas now we're seeing the, the flip side of where concentration can bring us, bring us own risks and that may have impact for market structure moving forward. But if we, the message then for listeners from what you were just saying, Max, is that if they're thinking through what will be the regulatory crunch, the political change that comes from this crisis, probably not primary legislation in Congress, but you could see higher capital requirements through the review that we're going to see in the coming months and years for those mid-size banks. The one element we haven't talked about there, though, Max, is around the funds, venture capital, but other private funds. As I noted earlier, a lot of blame was thrown at some of those funds during the last weekend on social media and elsewhere about how how this crisis was precipitated and how the response to it came. Do you see the regulatory political implications being restricted to the banks in the way that you've just described? Or could we see new ideas for regulation going into that part of the financial system as well? So I think, and this, this kind of gets to what I was saying earlier, that you know, the venture capital angle hasn't quite taken off in the policymaker space here in the US, but you know, I, I do think that's partially because this initial focus was is really on um, protecting these banks, what happened, and and what are we going to do move forward for for the banking system specifically. But yeah, I think um, the one angle that I, I'd, I'd be concerned about is you know you, you saw pretty some pretty extensive public reporting about number of venture capital firms basically telling everyone to pull their money out of Silicon Valley. And then a few folks at the same time also calling for uh, a bailout of Silicon Valley because of its importance to the tech sector. You know that that won't play well yeah, if you're <laughs> sitting before a congressional hearing. Um, so it, it might be a little a little too early to know if there's you know there're going to be new regulatory requirements specifically looking at uh, venture capital or, or private funds coming out of this. I think we're still very early in the situation. We're still going to be learning more about what happened. You know, for example, the SEC has been looking at a looking at a rule that basically would make it easier for a limited partner to sue for negligence. This, but this is coming out of more the FTX situation. I think I, even before that, not not really out of not stemming over the weekend from Silicon Valley Bank. But you know, from a reputational or political messaging perspective, I think that's where the immediate risk uh, comes from. You know, maybe maybe you don't necessarily care if. Uh, you know, if you're one of your ma- you know, managing director gets hauled before Senate banking and criticized, if you don't really think legislation will come together and, and anything will actually change from a legal perspective. But, you know, these these things build slowly. Um, the tech sector in general has become kind of one of the easier targets for bipartisan criticism over the years. Um, you know, maybe, maybe more so looking at antitrust and, and other areas. But, you know, while there's not an immediate re- regulatory issue, but Possibly there, you know, hearings and, and sustained discussion and ideas forming around potential pieces of legislation. Um, that's how things eventually build up, and then suddenly you have a situation where, you know, you have a must-pass piece of legislation, and somebody tacks on a bill 
that they've had sitting on the shelf for years that they've developed and and it suddenly sneaks through um so that's kind of where you know you could you could see this growing slowly so maybe maybe not tomorrow there's a, an immediate regulatory risk but you, you, you know i wouldn't necessarily discount it i suppose it's the case that the only worse thing than not getting a bailout is getting a bailout and the political and reputational damage and criticism that you then face following that is on a slightly different level to anything that's uh, gone before we'll see how that plays out uh, in the coming uh, weeks months and years max but thanks very much for taking us through that fully educated uh, me to an extent I didn't quite comprehend all the nuances and the ins and outs of the US system and I'm sure that's the same for listeners so thank you very much to those on the line uh, as always if you your business or your investment are exposed to the trends that we've been talking about today about the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank both in the US and the UK and the resulting policy response please don't get hesitate to get in touch uh, with Max or uh, with other members of our financial services or tech media and telecoms teams you can find our details at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes and next week uh, we have a special episode we've got John Edwards the UK's information commissioner is going to sit down for a interview with me to talk through his views on data protection, enforcement, reform, and his perspective on how he should approach uh, the management of the UK public sector and how it holds and treats citizens' data. Please, uh, please tune in then. Otherwise, thank you for joining. Bye-bye.